uh, this week, uh, this past week, we reached 8 billion people on the planet. I think on, they officially announced it. I don't know when they actually count that baby that popped out. Yeah, how do they know which one actually gets to be claimed number 8 billion? They yeah. did narrow it down to an actual person, though. Did I don't they? know who got Yeah, they claimed what? it was, yeah, a certain county or a certain state it was born in. I can't China. remember. China. I can't remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they can do that, but right. apparently one in of the them US. got the, yeah, got dibs on it. Oh. Wow. Yeah. But Seems thing like on it could be highly contested. 15th of November, uh, 8 billion people. So hooray. Hooray for that. More people, the better, mm-hmm. right, Elon? That's right. According to <laughs> Mr. Musk. Mm-hmm. And, um, Anyway, it's momentous, and we're we're on our way, as we've discussed before, in in you guys' lifetime, um, to maybe nine and a half billion, and and on onward to ten billion, um, by the end of maybe twenty one hundred. So more mouths to feed, you know, and um, and and hence, hence the big challenge and big opportunity for agriculture, and the nonlinear increase to people too puts pressure on it like that rate has been rising faster and faster so the need for innovation to keep up with that Mm -hmm. and uh, surpass it is actually a greater task than just drawing that out linearly right before we hit record um you were talking about the do you want to just quickly rattle off that that non-linear growth that you're talking about just for the listeners so I won't hit all of them but two billion was 1928 and then the next billion people came along it looks like in 1959, so let's say 30 years, and then we take a look at this last jump from 7 to 8 billion. It only took 12 years, so 2010 to 2022. And so it's, uh, you know, it, it starts out looking linear, but then it exponentially increases um, as, as the way that multiplication kind of does when there's more and more people. And um, the exponential curve means that time is of the essence for keeping the supply of you know food for everyone ahead of the demand for people that need it and so it's an even more uh daunting for sure and sometimes in history and maybe um you know maybe that'll happen again too where it's a daunting task to actually get the right amount of food or an abundance of food for people but um i think that part is interesting that you know Mm -hmm. it isn't Mm -hmm. um it actually gives you less time with the how fast that can ramp up with how many people are coming do you know when the um when we hit the first billion people, yeah, I think it was like eighteen eighty. It took us. Isn't that it crazy? took us about ten thousand, twelve thousand years to get there to our first billionth person on the planet, <laughs> and then. Well, yeah. when when you were born, how many? Yeah, I think you know? there's like three. Th- in nineteen sixty four, I think there's like three and a half billion people there. Wow. So in your lifetime. That's yeah. Seen it over double. Yeah, it it's really is spectacular. People like you really. It's good to bring up because it's 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 really an incredible accomplishment that not only do we have this exponential growth, as you said, Tommy. So we got to like it took ten thousand years to get one billion. Then it took like another hundred years to get two billion. Mm-hmm. And then once we hit the sixties, then we started adding a billion people every twelve or thirteen years. Crazy, you know? Yeah. And um and now we just hit eight billion and. And I guess we'll, you know, in the next 15 years, we'll add another billion. So these, these, uh, it's been very condensed on on the the time period to 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 add another billion people to the planet. And 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 naturally, you would that would cause a lot of alarm, and it did. 
you know, it goes back to what the Thomas Malthus, you know, the, the Malthusian catastrophe was exactly the thing you talked about, um, Tommy, with, uh, you know, exponential growth of people and population, but our inability of uh, to grow um, food in particular at the same rate. Yeah. Yeah. So the contention was by Thomas Malthus, he was a reverend, a British guy, and he's he's been he's super famous for for his thankfully um unrealized fear. You know, he thought the world was gonna was gonna starve and acolytes of Malthus, um, more recently Paul Ehrlich, who's in the sixties, wrote the population bomb and he's been he's been like the poster boy for the neo Malthusian poster boy. And uh, they've they've all been wrong, thankfully, you know, in their prediction that there would be millions and I mean billions of people starve and die, and and um, and in fact, it was kind of they had this 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 sort of terrible anti-human philosophy of of um, maybe we need to cut off our uh, you know your left arm to save the rest of the body, like they were, mm. they were ready to throw away um, whole whole um, continents of the world like the <laughs> the indian subcontinent and wow. yeah right i mean it's just terrible uh um philosophy they had that really they had no confidence in human ingenuity is well, what it really came down to what was it if this is a recurring theme of this kind of doomsday predictions yeah. has it been similar things come along each time to get us out of it clearly it, as you said it didn't happen um i guess for Melthus. Right. His prediction. What? What was there? Was there a big singular event that changed the the course of of history? Well, yeah. Like there are there are some really key events that happened. Like I think it was William Crooks. He stood in front of the British Parliament in like eighteen eighty eight. Like don't hold me to that number, but it was a while ago. And he and he made a speech to the British Parliament that um that uh, the world is in, in, in terrible peril of starvation because of our lack of nitrogen and our uh, burgeoning population growth, like the population explosion. So they could foresee it. They had no bloody nitrogen, and without nitrogen, you can't grow food. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we've all read that really great book um, called The Alchemy of Air, which is just a fantastical... It's like the Houdini escape in in terms of of uh escaping this terrible catastrophe through um technology of of um excuse me of uh being able to convert atmospheric nitrogen into uh, ammonia that plants can use uh, is that the harbor bosch that's that- yeah harbor bosch uh, those two german scientists uh, fritz harbor and back in 1888 or whatever year you threw it it was when they Right. Finally developed oh, wow. it. Yeah. Okay. And was it 1908 something? I thought yes. it was more recent. That's okay. Maybe later than 1908. But all the no, nitrogen in the world had been coming from um, natural sources. So here we go back to organic. And uh, <laughs> yeah. our message is don't rely on organic to feed the world. Um, the but, joys of collecting that natural uh, yeah. organic nitrogen were something to behold. You know, the, the coolies that they talk right. about in that book. Uh, coolies are the, the Chinese. Yeah. What is this? They'd collect the guana, the the bird excrement, sea seabird oh. excrement um from was it Peru? Is that yeah, where they're collecting the it from? Off the coast of Peru. Off yeah. the coast of Weren't Peru. There, and that was uh Were there wars fought over 
uh, bird that. shit. Is that uh-huh. is that true? It's ringing a bell that there was specifically for that to get the uh, nitrogen rich yeah. rocks. Yeah. Whoever could claim the source of nitrogen had a upper hand because nitrogen, well, it still is, you know, it's somewhat finite, but it was completely finite then. So there was, yeah, I think wow. um, battles and it was a, who could get the upper hand had the access to that and the, the saltpeter, that the, the chili saltpeter, the potassium nitrate in the soil. There's certain areas in the world that have the right, you know, combination of potassium or sodium nitrate. I think it was called saltpeter. Saltpeter, uh, yeah. The guana and saltpeter, uh, Chile and Peru, wow. were housing a lot of the. They're keeping that population going, and so back to your comment earlier about how the Malthusian way of thinking was: okay, they know that there's this amount of nitrogen. There's not more or less coming. Food production, you can only make incremental increases, you know, across time. Population explosion is. Um, exponential. So those two land, those two lines are going to intersect, and that's where the issue is going to come from. They but innovation foresee. changes yeah. the slope, and um, and that is where the Haber-Bosch system can kind of come in and probably what's the, the it's a couple billion lives credited of saving. Mm-hmm. You know, with with um, with that invention of taking the atmospheric nitrogen, making ammonia um, something that previously microbes were. Reliable for doing in the pulling soil. Pulling nitrogen or, out of the air into yeah fer- yeah to putting it into that- liquid nitrogen form for fertilizer and use it using huge amount of energy. Yeah, how do, do you know the process? Just high high pressure, they're able to force the uh, molecules together. Um, wow. Heat and pressure and factories and um, I mean the hmm. they scaled it. Obviously, it started out really small sure. to show to prove the concept, but now it. Well, I think you've. Um, you maybe mm-hmm. mentioned this even last episode or a couple of ago, but like the total energy input that takes up this process still today takes up one to two percent of all of the wow. world energy. That's mm-hmm. how important nitrogen is. Wow. And therefore that's how important this process is that can take the readily available nitrogen readily in quotes. It's not usable in the form that it is, but it's there in, in the, the atmosphere. atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Seventy to eighty percent of atmosphere is that nitrogen, like you were mentioning. And being able to collect that and use it for productive purposes. Mm. Yeah, it's... Jumping... Oh, go ahead. Nope, just going to round by saying it's a big, big-time energy sink, but one that no one would question is uh, it, it seems to be worth it. Yeah, well, I was I don't remember where I was reading it, um, and I won't know the details, so don't come to me for the details, but um, going back, way back in history to the, uh, the expansion of the Roman Empire, um, reading that's an interesting piece of it as to why they constantly were expanding was to get to more, uh, more fields with more, essentially more nitrogen so that they could continue to feed their empire. And so since they weren't able to return nitrogen to the soil, their only option was to continually move outwards and set up trade lines back to the empire. Um, wasn't, I guess maybe I'd never thought about why they constant expansion, but that was a fascinating, uh, little, tidbit that it's i i wasn't point. aware of but so yeah then, to feed their people they yeah. weren't able to just keep the same amount of land they had and just become more efficient they just went and got more untapped land and grew their food you know further and further out and were able to feed their growing empire it's like a absolute necessity nitrogen to yes it's, it's the humans yeah to, yeah to, it's quite critical yeah and, i guess it's maybe, well, maybe it's right limiting yeah. Constraint for growing crops, you know. Yeah. That and CO2. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe it's with they still practice the called slash and burn, but you know slash down the forest and burn it, and that must restore some, must fix some nitrogen when you do that for a short period. I'm not sure what that. Do you know what that process is? No, the slash and burn. It sounds like the the witch hunt era. Yeah, right. Is that a different slash and burn? It's a different one. Ah. Build a bridge out <laughs> of her. For, 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 for having a short-term gain in, in, in fertility of land mm. by burning. Is that why? Yeah. Then you got to keep moving. You're yeah. exhausted. And like two crops, it's exhausted. you got to move on, burn down some more. Yeah. Mm. You know. Still so. practice use today is the controlled burns. Is that kind of what? You're yeah, about, I think maybe that's part of it. I I don't the control burns maybe is also to control certain types of weeds or yep. you know maybe a combination. But it certainly you get a spike in fertility right after a burn. Yeah, you know, and um, but I know you know you mentioned nitrogen being um, the cruel irony. It's called the dead gas because seventy eight percent of our atmosphere is nitrogen, so we're we're literally drowning in nitrogen. But it's not available to to um, plants to use. They need, you know, it's, it's so it's called the dead gas. It needs to be fixed. Fixed is a funny word to say, but I mean you got to fix it. And um, the way it's fixed is by in nature by lightning. Lightning strikes with you know so much heat and energy and lightning because you mentioned the energy mm-hmm. needed by these Harbor Bosch factories. Two percent of the world's electricity energy goes towards uh, fixing nitrogen. The other way is by bacteria um, can do it in a in a symbiotic relationship with leguminous or legume plants. Yeah, in their root nodules. So it's a fascinating process where the bacteria do the job for for the plant, and then yeah. we get to eat the plant, and our animals eat the plants, and we benefit. Part of the rationale for crop rotations. Absolutely, you know, it's the work rationale. in the legume in between yep. two years of corn, one year of beans. Yeah, and then uh, help replenish some of the nitrogen in the soil. And then the third way is to is to use the Haber Bosch process and convert um, nitrogen into ammonia. So ammonia is a, a form of a nitrogen compound, and um, Oddly enough, I think plants, I read, plants can, um, they can only uptake inorganic nitrogen. So even organic has to be converted to inorganic for to use it. So synthetic nitrogen through through the Haber-Bosch process has been, you know, has been applied to fertilizer, um, fertilized lands ever since we, the 1930s. And that's helped, <clears throat> excuse me, that's really been the biggest thing that's helped feed the world to your point earlier, Jack, about what are the things that have made made it possible. That's number one. Then along came this guy called Norman Borlaug from Minnesota. He was born in Iowa, but you know, he, he received the Nobel Peace Prize. And so did Harbour and Bosch. The other reason they needed the 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 uh, ammonia or the nitrogen plants, Jack, was to um also for ammunition. Was, yeah, for yeah. For all the gunpowder in World War One, World War Two, they needed. They were desperate for, for ammo. Because w- there's an interesting history with Fritz Harbor, right? That, uh, yeah. he's credited with. Correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. helping develop the chemical warfare, he's kind of the weapons right. like the chlorine the gas of and that, yeah, trench warfare. So <laughs> this 
He's a polarizing figure in history. Talk about the good and the uh, the ugly. Yeah. Right. Uh, That's just an interesting... I'm reading about it here because I was... As we were talking about it, I... I think his wife was so... Was so... Shaken to her core by by the um the sort of the Machiavellian nature of of um, Fritz Haber that she she committed suicide. She couldn't live with the horror that he was involved with uh, um, mm. Zyklon B, you know, yeah. for for gassing the in the concentration camps, and he he also was the the leader of uh, the mustard gas and chlorine mm-hmm. gas Correct. in World War One. That's what I'm. Yeah. Yeah. So he and yet he's credited with saving four billion lives. So it's a real Jungian, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> Taoist Yin. I mean, he's got both sides: the good and the evil. The extremes yeah. of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So his wife, she could, she committed suicide. She could not handle the the, the horror that he had become. You wow. know, so but anyway, so they interesting. Yeah, really. The, but the, uh, so they had a need for for food, for growing food, fertilizing lands, which we're still benefiting from today, and then for uh, to uh, ammunition and dynamite and you know all explosives for the war to fight the wars. So nitrogen's had a had a you know a light and dark side to it. And then the second thing was Norman Borlaug with the Green Revolution, and he took this ability of, um, of uh, you know, the ammonia or fixed nitrogen, and then applied it to plant breeding, and he's and he's the father of the Green Revolution during the '60s through the '70s, credited with another billion, saving another billion lives through his plant breeding techniques. Um, using dwarf dwarf strains of wheat and rice and combining it with uh, now copious amounts of nitrogen. So you have a polarizing side to him? How many people is he <laughs> responsible he for killing? <laughs> no, I think Norm was just a straight-up good guy. <laughs> nice Lutheran boy from northern Iowa. Minimal mustard gas. <laughs> yep, yep. He was like, hold the gas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, he... By all accounts, he well was done, a magnificent Norm. human, yeah. and hardly anyone knows about him. But he he received like presidential award. He received like oh, they've even built a statue of him. I think in in um, certainly in Washington D.C. outside the Capitol now. Oh, really? Yeah, but no one knows about him. Yeah, he's well, he's not taught no. about. I know that you don't. Right. He's not a part of history that. Yeah, it's part of the curriculum for some right, reason. Right, right. Everyone knows about, um, you know, Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi. You know, and and but Norman, Doctor Borlaug saved you know a billion lives and and um, not to denigrate their efforts, but <laughs> <laughs> but by comparison, you know, he's in the major leagues, and yet he's unknown. <laughs> But no, Mother Mother Teresa, if you're listening in, I'm actually very fond of you. So yeah, those would be the two big ones, though, right? Yeah, and then along comes then just huge incremental gains on on uh, you know it's a fly a fly sorry a flywheel effect. I think where you add a thousand different technologies to those two big ones. Yeah, yeah, and the fossil fuels has driven everything. So we can't forget the you know the gift of to humanity of of um, all those dinosaurs and 
plankton dying over billions of years. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, <laughs> for your sacrifice. Because, you know, without <laughs> fossil fuels, use. none of it would have happened. Yeah. But it's really, really staggering. We escaped the Malthusian trap and looks like we're good to go, you know. And if we're allowed to keep adapting with ingenuity and technology, we can feed 10 billion people, you know, no worries. Yeah, maybe it's a good time to use Norman's quote. What is that exactly? Yeah. That one, I think he maybe referenced it last time, but... Yeah, and Dr. Borlaug, before he died, um, he, he said, you know, to paraphrase, we haven't, we'll have no trouble feeding 10 billion people. The question is, is will we be allowed to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's very worried about this anti-science zealotry that's mm-hmm. creeping in, you know, and, and would, would hijack the human ingenuity of, of farmers and scientists and industry to produce food. He saw that as the greatest threat you know, that's on the horizon. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely right. I mean, we see it all the time. We talked in the last podcast about, you know, this sort of a um, a return to ancient times, you know, a, resi- a resistance of using modern techniques and technologies. And, um, and it's a, you know, it's an indulgent recklessness is fundamentally what it is. Because we got a lot of people to do, feed, as we mentioned, eight billion people, and then I I lost my slides here, but you know, eight out of ten will be in Africa and Asia of all the people that'll be born by mm-hmm. the year twenty one hundred. So that's in seventy years, but in, by the year twenty fifty, that's only uh, twenty. That's only thirty years away, twenty eight years away. You know, fifty um, percent of all the newborn people are going to be in in countries that m- most people haven't even heard of. Like you know, Nigeria and in Pakistan and in Afghanistan and in um, you know those uh, African countries, primarily in Asian countries. But it's not the the people aren't going to be here in America. Yeah, and they're sure as hell not going to be in New Zealand or Australia. They're going to be in these countries that in the places that already have trouble producing yeah know, the the food they need and right the, the resources they need. And there's already well, as you've hit on in the past, some frictions already are making it hard on them already with, uh, you know, Europe's um, influence on how they're able to grow their crops and how yeah. they're able to farm. And um, they're, they're being withheld from the most efficient, you know, um, yeah. aspects of agriculture that we get to enjoy over here. Yeah. And um, yeah. it just happens to be where all the people are going or going to end up being. Right. I mean, so if we want to, if you have any, if we have any sense of compassion, like true compassion for people, then we, then we need to be sort of thinking in a hierarchy of, of um, values that would be like, okay, what will do the poor of the world the most good, you know, and, um, and rising incomes is number one and, um, and ability to produce food you know, maybe they maybe they they go hand in hand in some respects, but they have to be the highest values because because without food you can't live. And, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty fundamental. <laughs> yeah, you write that down. Yeah, and um, and then also with uh with rising incomes, you know, then the the quality of food 
becomes you know much more available and better and also as people become more wealthy they're they're um they have the ability to well they they have the um reality of looking after the environment better you know it's like you travel around the world to these third world you know countries or poorest nations where they you know there's a lot of people and you can't help but be assaulted by the by the pollution mm-hmm. you know and you want to say well what the hell there's this is so filthy you know it's just terrible like the smell and the sights and the but it's like but, but you you know and you can get overwhelmed by that almost but the fundamental problem is they're poor you know yeah. and and um but and the miraculous you know thing is if we can if we can liberate their economies through trade and and through cheap energy we need here we go back to energy again you got to have cheap energy that is number 1 Cheap energy drives cheap food, and it drives economies, economic growth and wealth, and then the environment follows. Look, I was just reading, rereading a book about the um, uh, Sinclair Lewis or Upton Sinclair. He wrote the Jungle about the the shit show of the um, Chicago, with uh, as the home of the slaughterhouses, the packing plants in America. Yeah, you know, back in the eighteen hundreds, where the Irish and the all the immigrants came in and worked there. And the rivers were, you know, I, I think they famously set the, the river in the lake of Michigan on fire, you know. There was so much tallow and shit floating in there. <laughs> and, um, like, the workers, they were up to their knees in, in, in blood and guts working in these slaughter plants. You know, there's a million ahead of uh, uh, I think one and a half million head a month they were processing in sh- just in Chicago and um so you think about what a disaster that was a hundred years ago like you imagine if you were transported back in time but now look today I mean Chicago is a beautiful city you know it's like mind you, mind you don't get shot but other, <laughs> other than that it's a beautiful city and uh, you know clean and modern and and that's been the that's been the story of mankind. We you know, London used to be rat infested, mud, slime, you know, and a magnificent city, you know, and and so economic growth has lifted it. That's what happens. You get people like I think the number beyond Lomberg, he'll know for sure. Um and we know him, but if you get people to a like a, a family income of like two and a half thousand dollars, three thousand dollars, it's not much. But you get over that, and then all of a sudden, they, the environment starts getting taken care of as well. He talks about the even something as simple as heating homes and cooking, and the um, environmental slash pollution slash deaths that come from that. Of this, um, you know, poor countries having to rely on open flame cooking, burning things inside their home for warmth and for cooking their food, and mm-hmm. the negative effects if if environment concerns are you know part of that that be likely larger from that but also just the detrimental effect it has on human health from having you know not great access to cheap energy and warmth that's their mode to get it and Mm -hmm. you know even just raising the um raising them out of poverty that would be one of the first issues that could be handled or tackled by that too yeah seems like that's a I just heard him talking about that recently, uh, Bjorn Lomberg on, I think he was on Joe Rogan, but it was, uh, 
I hadn't heard that before. It's interesting sure. that that's still a you know millions maybe succumb to that every year. As uh, well, is it's a very real um, issue that you know has effects mm-hmm. that aren't maybe talked about as much as um, other things today. Yeah, well, you you go in India, you can't you'll see this. You you drive through rural India, and even not so rural. I mean, India is for all intents and purposes is the largest populated country in the world now. It's like China's. China maybe doesn't want to admit it, but I think I think India's beat them out now. But and they and they're the home to the largest cattle herd, you know, in the world. In India, the cattle are 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 yeah. sacred, so they're not allowed to kill cattle in India. It makes you wonder what, what they, they do with like their hundred million head of cattle, buffalo. You know, they're they have a lot of buffalo there. What do they domesticated do buffalo? Why do they have such a big herd? Well, they the big herd is because they're they're sacred. And they and so people they really they worship cows, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. they're they look after them and they're they're roaming free. It's the damnedest thing. Right in the cities, you know, there's cattle laying on the road. Everyone has to go around them. <laughs> really? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're wandering everywhere in 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 the in the marketplaces where they're selling food and people are buying. And, and then a cow will come and nuzzle in beside you and reach in there and grab like a, an apple or something off the shelf. <laughs> It's like, and they don't beat them away with a stick or anything. They kind of gently push them away, and then they're in all the garbage piles too. Like, mm. so they're recycling. Are they owned? Like, do people know? Which mm, no, <laughs> they're kind of community. They're kind of communal. Um, I suppose some are owned. The dairy cows are, are owned they for sure. Cows? No. Okay. Do they no, get no. any? Because all the male calves are, can't be milked. Right. I don't know if you knew that or not, but <laughs> I mean, if you're really vigorous, I guess you can get some milk out of them, but. <laughs> Well, is there any? Like, <laughs> but by and large, you can't. <laughs> yeah, dairy. There's a big dairy industry for okay. milking buffalo. Uh, for like a special mozzarella cheese comes from buffalo. But um, and then there are some modern dairy cows too. There, mm-hmm. they love milk. Sure. The Indians and a lot of their dishes have got milk in them. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely not lactose intolerant. The Indian population, <laughs> they love them. But anyway, I di- I digress. Well. You're back to your point about fuel. Outside every home in in the rural India is uh, these uh, teepee of of dung pat pets. You know, yeah. That they that their job, the women's job and children, is to gather up the the dung from the all the cattle. Mm-hmm. So if they own cattle, they they catch their you know manure, and if they if they're wild roaming cattle, they they bring them in, and and they're very fibrous and they dry because it's hotter in hell in India, um, and then um, and then they use them for cooking. That's their main so- fuel source for cooking to, to today, <laughs> and um, today. today yeah, for all their cooking is done with recycling um cattle. Manure, which still has a high, you know, dry matter fiber content, burn burns very well. Wow! So and if you just said that and had people guess what era that yeah. is, you would think so long ago when that was maybe happening. Right? You'd think when like the not twenty twenty two. No, right? Wow. But today that's still the case. So it's, it's interesting this um this intersection of of energy and and egg mm-hmm. and and I mean said it a couple times, but energy. Leads everything, including egg. Um, I don't know that that's an obvious connection that everyone makes. Um, you know, might be able to think they're somewhat independent, 
so then when we, you know, we hear about scenarios like that in India, but, you know, and then we're also here in the Western world and developed world here about shifts away from uh, dependable and, and uh, high output energy types to um, solar and wind and in a general regression on our grid overall. And you start to understand this impact that energy plays on ag and the fact that there's parts of the world that are still so far behind where we are now when we're talking about taking fundamental steps backwards for their energy policies. It's, um, you start to see maybe pretty quickly how when you hear these headlines of food insecurity and, and uh, looming famines, it's, it's, it's a little more, um, you can see my, maybe where it's stemming from. It's not just ag as an isolated industry, is it? Right. It's, they're very, they're linked. They're, they're absolutely intractably linked together, our ability to produce food and energy. Yeah. Uh, and the corner, you know, we, as we talk, the cornerstone one could be just for nitrogen. It's the rate limiting nutrient. CO2 is, is great because it's a free gas. You know, for plants use it, plants need it, and they expire oxygen, which we use. So, I mean, CO2 is a miraculous gas, but it's free. And um, But nitrogen isn't. And in order for plants to use that, we have to use human ingenuity and cr crush it in extreme heat through these processes. And then, and that takes, you know, huge amount of energy. So we're seeing this, Jack, played out, you know, on this, uh, again, through the, in, in very acutely through the uh, Ukraine-Russian mm -hmm. war conflict that continues. And, and so we're, the world is starting to really, the, the, the developed world for the first time in our lifetimes. I mean, there was the big energy crisis way back with Nixon in like 73 when we had the oil embargoes that the, all the Arab states placed on the U.S. Mm -hmm. and, and then on Europe and basically shut down, you know, our economies. Um, and so we haven't seen it. Many people have never seen such a crisis looming in their lifetime. Certainly, it was before you guys were born, mm -hmm. and so now, now the modern world is, is 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 starting to feel this pinch of what happens if you lose energy, and then you lose your ability to produce ammonia fertilizer, and then you lose your ability to grow crops, and then all of a sudden you got lack of food, and then you've got extremely high rising prices of food, mm -hmm. and um. So energy, energy deficits equals high food cost. Yeah. <laughs> That's a short equation. It's a pretty obvious link mm -hmm. and chain of events to follow. Like it's not that difficult to, to understand the, uh, the logic behind what you just mm -hmm. laid out there. So when you see you know, this overall call to reduce you know, nitrogen and that things... Headlines and, and stories like that. I don't. Obviously, the Dutch one is a famous one of recent. But how and how is that even a entertainable thought? If it's quite quickly, we could see, you know, just how important nitrogen is. And few steps later, it's high prices because of lack of, you know, it's just supply and demand. How, how is that something that's still being talked about? That cutting back on these technologies. Yeah, it, a little bit. Or, or why is the what's the um harm? I guess maybe is the question. 
So the obvious benefit of nitrogen is everything we've talked about for the last 40 minutes. What is the flip side of it, the, the con that they're trying to caution us away from when they want to reduce nitrogen fertilizer? Yeah, excess nitrogen and, um, you know, uh, as a pollutant um, would be, I think, the concern that would be mostly talked about if there's, if it's oversupplied, overprovided or excreted from cattle or from animals, um, you know, it could be on the, the crop side or the animal side, there's outputs of nitrogen that maybe doesn't get utilized that then, you know, being washed away and going into, into the waters or maybe something like that is the concern of mm. we're not as concerned about that at the moment. And people would maybe like to circle that as the next item. Um, sure. And so that's what we're starting to see is nitrogen having coming more into the focus of ways to reduce our environmental impact. And so nitrogen, it's expensive, right? Fertilizer. So mm-hmm. wouldn't there be a natural incentive to not overuse it if it's an input that costs you a lot of money? Like, uh, I mean, that's a really simplistic breakdown of probably a complex issue. But in that's principle, we, you know, if you're worried about overusing it, isn't it kind of a self-balancing thing? You wouldn't want to overuse something you have to pay a lot for. for so on the, the crop side, I think that's 100% accurate. I don't know enough to speak to why there would be scenarios where they'd overprovide it. Um, I think it's trying to provide it to the right amount that they need it for. Animal side, there are there is some case to be made that it they don't need all of the nitrogen that they do get. But what does it do for animals? I didn't know you. Uh, in protein, so nitrogen would make up crude protein um, or protein in general, and so uh, it's a uh, the component that makes something qualify as crude protein is nitrogen, and so the. You know, that's why if you guys, is crude protein a term you guys no. hear about or know about? This okay, maybe that's already getting into, that's, it's good to have the reality check because in my world, we talk about crude protein all the time. Um, yeah. For Metabolizable protein. So yep. I'm, this yep. is totally new to me. What, so nitrogen in the plant world is fertilizer. What mm-hmm. is nitrogen in the animal world? You're not nitrogen. feeding them fertilizer. Is the is a pretty critical component of amino acids, which are the building blocks for proteins, and then so lean tissue and. But like, what's like the that. actual product? How do you get nitrogen into cattle in your? Oh, how do like you, what like yeah, just like fertilizer the to crops? Yep. Okay. So the feed. So like different feed stuffs would have different levels of nitrogen. nitrogen. Yeah, okay. I don't understand your question, but there'd be. You're too smart for my dumb questions. <laughs> think think dumb different or, levels of um think protein. Yep. Like this protein and 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 all the different foods, sure. There's protein in the hay, the grass. There's protein. Even there's some protein in the corn, of course. Mm-hmm. And yep. then soybeans are a famous protein source and different things that the nutritionists will take that that nominal protein level and work that into the animal's rat diet ration, mm-hmm. so that he the animal will be provided with enough that they can extract that when they break down that protein they can extract the nitrogen from it and sure. and then they can use that to rebuild like muscle and meat and mm-hmm. immune mm-hmm. cell every every aspect of their body of our bodies requires nitrogen you know okay well there's and, the quick background yeah. that's helpful so to my i still want my first question uh you were saying before i took us on a tangent that there is an argument maybe that in the animal world it is being in the livestock world it's being overused 
So this depends how deep we want to go on the um, the science behind it, but I'll let you um, know when I'm bored. <laughs> bored. Hey, <Ow. laughs> done. No, I am interested. So say uncle. <laughs> amino acids they make they form together. Peptide bonds make protein. So amino acids building blocks for protein. Animals have amino acid requirement, not a protein requirement, and so amino acids need to. And there's twenty amino acids, you know, that might be, um, there's essential and non-essential. And so <clears throat> the essential ones are the ones that need to be provided in the diet and, or you can't make them internally. And so those need to be provided to the animal. Let's stick to cattle when we're talking about this, just um, to be on the same page, but they have an amino acid requirement. 10 of the amino acids they can make inside, 10 of them need to be provided. Um, but <clears throat> the levels that are required for each individual amino acid are not the same. And so, and it's called the limiting amino acid theory or um, it's not really a theory. It's known. It's what it is. It's called, but limiting amino acids means say for instance, that lysine is an amino acid. Its requirement might be, you know, at the bottom, it might, let's say it needs three grams of lysine um, and they need 10 grams of methionine. But if the feed that's provided doesn't have that right ratio, sure. if you don't meet lysine's three grams, methionine, all of those grams are going to be wasted because that can't go towards a productive purpose until the most limiting amino acid is met. Mm. And so if you overprovide crude protein or protein in general, then you try to mask the limiting amino um, acid effect. Um, but because each animal is different and each scenario is different to determine what that perfect balance of amino so acids is going to be. Err on the side of more. So you err on the side a little bit more. Plus, because a lot of the feedstuffs that we're using are somewhat cheap that can bring in the protein. Um, and the beautiful part about nutrition is that the excess amino acids say that you've met all of your amino acid requirements, but you overprovided it the carbon skeleton portion of that amino acid can be burned as energy and go towards growth. It does mean that some nitrogen may leave the body though, that it wasn't gone, that didn't get tied up into protein or hmm. into an amino acid and put into tissue. So that would be, are you bored yet? No, I'm, that, <laughs> that I'm would not, be why I'm less bored than I am lost, but I, but I, just that's, that's interesting. That's the, at least so one in, reason why that, um, protein can be overprovided to livestock species because if you underprovide it, if you're limiting an amino acid, they're just not going to grow um, sure. efficiently. And so you don't want to risk underproviding it. Correct. Essentially. Yep. That, okay. Yep. In a nutshell. Right. Okay. Uh, ideally you could take a, a sample of the animal and figure out its yeah. exact amino acid requirements and then formulate the diet to do that That's and plug that in. That's realistic. just not, it's not realistic. There's big strides being made in that area, you know, um, monogastrics or pigs and poultry are further ahead on that regard sure. but um and dairy is probably ahead of beef in that regard but ruminants in general it's tricky to provide the amino acids in the perfect balance that they need yeah um, well, we're talking about huge yeah you know, it's what's the cattle herd in the united states alone beef cattle there's a beef is is it uh 14 million head on feed 12 million head on feed i think mm-hmm. overall is it uh, 90 90 million cattle cattle thousand yeah. cattle Let's yeah. talk about doing the, the ideal example. Like, yeah. Like, it's just not feasible. It's So I see where the... Yeah. You don't want to risk not getting the effect out of it, so it's... 
And if you're handling the manure correctly, which there's a lot of regulations in place for, um, you know, any um, farm of consequence or size, they have to follow very strict rules on the, you know, retention ponds yep. and um, and then how they handle their manure and getting. Plus, it's money to them too. They're going to take care of their manure because we talked about nature and then going back yeah. on to, you it's know, worth if a lot they of money. Can sell it to neighbors that maybe have crops or if they have crops of their own, they just put it back on. It's a put it back on the land to grow the next crop. Yep. So it goes back on. Yeah. So recycles. Yeah. Goes around and around. Interesting. You were talking about the on the protein made me think about the bacteria in the because the don't they don't with with cattle they the they they get some of their amino acid protein requirement from the bacteria in their rumens. So they they're sort of an intermediary role of the of the microorganisms in the rumen, is that right? Yeah, it's a, a, it's a big part of their mm -hmm. overall protein requirement comes from the bugs themselves. And so um, a ruminant makes them unique, the, the rumen stomach. I think we've talked about that a little bit, but that's they take a bite of feed, they swallow it, we're in the rumen. That's the first spot. And in the rumen, it's anaerobic, no air, very limited amount of air, so it's fermentation. Mm -hmm. Anaerobic fermentation requires microbes. So there's a very diverse set of microbes that are in there. Bacteria, protozoa, fungi, viruses, archaea, methanogens. Those would kind of be all of the different types of things that make up what a microbiome is. They are in there. They can break down the feeds. And so um, that, in essence, if you're a beef or dairy nutritionist, you're a nutritionist of microbes, rather, sure. um, you know, it, because mm -hmm. they get first crack at the feed. As opposed to feeding the animal. Yep. They get the first dibs. They get to take what they want out of the feed. Um, but it's symbiotic because these microbes are provided a safe place to grow and live, and they get the nutrients, and it's the right environment for them. If that's all it was, that's a one-way street. The ruminant gets something pretty unique out of it, too, because they get these end products of microbial fermentation, which the microbes themselves don't necessarily um, utilize. It's a undesirable end product in some regards to them called volatile fatty acids that's the what? main uh, vfa volatile fatty acid um, okay yep and so that's the main energy source for a ruminant so 70 percent of energy for the animal comes from these microbes and um, a wasted end product of their fermentation process so the animal the cattle they're able to absorb that out the vfa's out but the microbes themselves back to your question dad about um the, mm -hmm. the protein contribution from these bugs themselves if you picture just the digestive tract in general starts at the mouth and then the back end is the end process of it all the way through it the the the, pro, the fluid and digestive flows so it starts in the rumen the feed will then end up making its way reticulum then the omasum then the abomasum so the abomasum is like our stomach what we have um that's the true stomach where the ph it's really acidic mm -hmm. the feed flows but obviously some of these microbes are going to flow with it um, and so these microbes, when they make it into the um, abomasum, they pass through this low pH environment, and now they're ready to be broken down when they get into the duodenum, the small intestine. And there, that's a big part of the protein because microbes have, you know, they might be 30% of their structure is um, protein. And so, uh, and that's absorbable in the hind gut or in the small intestine for cattle. So they're able to, it's called microbial crude protein. So that's what flows. The bugs themselves end up in the small intestine. They get broken down, and then that nitrogen um, or the amino acids that are in those, uh, you know, in those microbes, uh, the bacteria, it's 
quite, um, you know, it, it's not the perfect blend of amino acids, but it's pretty dang good. Um, it matches our needs or the animal's needs really well. And so they're able to absorb it. It's a high quality protein. Um, and so they're able to absorb that and then utilize it for their growth. Mm. And so, yeah, the bugs flowing kind of through like the digestive the, tract. They're the cattle's digestive tracts, kind of like a refinery. You know, it starts with something crude, and then by the time it gets to the small intestine, it passes through all these different, you know, digestive organs that you mentioned, and then it's a very, very well-refined product yes. for the animal to finally <laughs> absorb. Right? That's right. I mean, that's, that's the crazy. the beauty of the ruminant. Yeah, yeah. Is. So back to India, <laughs> where the no. cattle are everywhere, and they're you know they're but they're you'll see them on the streets and all the cows are honking the horns and the rickshaws, but they're standing in all the garbage piles eating, like I swear they're eating everything, um, plates, plastic, like car a, tires, like a pig. Like they're they're car tires. No, but they're eating all the food that's been thrown out of every yeah. restaurant and every just in piles on the street. The like waste. it's really something to see. But that's you know, and then you wonder these cattle. But here they are; they they can eat they can eat damn near anything. Insane. Um, by by benefit of their uh, of this uh, digestive system, and so then you come to and then you say to, you think about all those cattle and and uh, on the streets there, and they look you know they look so healthy too. By the way, um, shiny and everything. But um, and then and then you think well, well. They can eat almost anything and be healthy, and then um, and then you think about them turning that waste product into good um, beef protein. Well, in India they can't eat them, um, so they, they all those cattle get get shipped in the middle of the night when they're ready over to Bangladesh and Pakistan, where um, where they're Muslim nations and they love to eat beef. So that's where they Jack to answer your question. That's where they go, um, but. But you don't want to be seen doing, be, that. doing that, or you, or, <laughs> sure. you, or you get, you know, you get in huge trouble. In fact, you might get killed. I mean, it's anyway. They take it pretty serious. Back to my recycling or upcycling point. Forty um, percent of of hum, of food produced for humans is wasted. You know, it's it's, and in the West, you know, we're we're guilty of this. Forty um, percent. You think about it. So. So half the food, basically, in some people's homes, is just thrown away. It's either is not eaten. Is that where the level of the wasting mostly? Is it the consumer level, or is it? It's at all. It's a different level. Sure. In, the, in the wealthy world, it's mostly at the consumer really? level, but in the in the impoverished world, it's mostly because they don't have good storage sure. for the food. You okay. know, they don't have refrigeration. Yeah, they got rodent, you know, pest problems. They okay. got um, heat, fungus, you know, problems. But in the wealthy world, it's a lot of it's just thrown away because we we got bored with it. the 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 chips aren't quite crunchy enough, so you throw them away. Mm-hmm. Or we're two days over the expiration date on a on a you know on a stick of butter. It's never stopped you. Two, no, two right. and a half years. Right. <laughs> anyway, so cattle can take a, a lot of human uh, or byproduct waste uh, products and convert them into um, into beef. Yeah. And um, I think we need to talk about that because a lot of people think, well, yeah. they should only be eating grass because grass is green and pure and it's like from the sound of music. It's got a few flowers growing in the pasture and 
everything it's got butterflies and it looks so beautiful and and cows are not made to eat grain that's what we hear all the time mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, it turns out cows they bloody love grain and um and 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 other food sources that come from grains that humans you know can't quite um that we don't that we don't utilize ourselves so maybe we could chat yeah. about that i yeah. think it's fascinating well i think you oh go ahead they're kind of like the Garbage disposal, a little bit. You know, they allow a lot of yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, like like they actually are in India, but Mm -hmm. they also play that role here to a much less known extent. Um, A lot of the human oil industries, you know, they're very valuable. They all create byproducts, um, which ends up being the oil might only be like a sunflower, for example, and oil might only be fifteen percent of that product, but that's the valuable part for a lot of uh, you know sunflower oil. It can be quite valuable. And cooking oils, and all these cooking oils for the human purposes, um, but oil isn't the main part of a lot of these oil seeds. And mm-hmm. so you squeeze the oil out, and now you're left with eighty-five percent of the product you started with, no real use for it um, besides the ruminant. And so if the ruminant wasn't there, or you all could land these other fill industries it. have you know, um, big amount of waste on their hand, um, or on their hands. And so 40% of food waste is a, it's a big deal, but without the ruminant there, it'd be way more considerably higher. Um, the potato industry, they rely very largely on the ruminant, um, businesses and industries around the, where the potatoes are produced because there's a lot of, um, you know, peels sorted off potatoes and peels and slurry yep. and things like that that come from the that industry that just don't make food grade and um they get to go into cattle to make um to make nitrogen and um or ultimately you know protein for us to consume but um so we want to dive into that a little bit is that right you want to talk through well, yeah i think the it's upcycling part of it well before that I, yeah. I think it's interesting observation all of that would get lumped in as grain fed right and right you just mentioned i don't know six different things that to my knowledge, aren't grain, but so it's a f- another occurrence of funny vernacular that doesn't, you know, doesn't lead the consumer to the right. truth of what's happening. Um, you know, you hear people that grain-fed cattle are just force-fed corn until yeah. they're sick, which is so wrong on so many different levels. But but they don't. It seems that it's uh, not well known that you know your brewery, your favorite microbrew, ah. you know, you like drinking the beer. Well, it turns out they have a shit ton of waste that comes from it that you don't think about because yeah. it's fed to cattle yeah yeah all the Brewers barley the barley yeah. the hops um that's and then whiskey you know like Correct. your buffalo trace <laughs> well that the 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 wheat or the you know the the grains that that they use to distill that all goes to yeah. that all that byproduct goes to cattle cotton like our beautiful clothing yep well, all of the once they pluck the lint off the cotton, all of those cotton seeds go to cattle instead of being wasted. Um, almonds, you know, very popular now. Well, once they extract the the so-called milk out of the almonds, you, like Tommy so-called? said, you got eighty-five percent. Yes, so-called milk. Um, soy hulls. Soy hulls. Citrus. Yeah, your citrus morning. Pulp. Your 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 orange juice for your, for with your bagel in the morning. You know, for those of you who like bagels, um, and then all of that. <laughs> like a type of person, I think everyone likes bagels. For sure, it is. They all live in the East Coast. So why does it get it's the? Why they all get 
why is it called grain food? Is it just because it's an easy catch-all? Yeah. Or is it because these are supplementary pieces to a grain diet? It, it's a good question. I actually don't know exactly. It probably all gets lumped I, into, like, I think a lot of people wouldn't know that um, like rations are quite word. complex. If when, yeah. So if they're not on pasture eating grass, the alternative yeah. is that they're grain-fed. It's not exclusively grain. You know, grain's a pretty large component of an efficient beef animal diet if they are being fed in a confined area but what percent like in a normal ration that you would put together um what would percent would be grain something would be classified as grain yeah it'd be if it's a finished so a steer let's say you're a um, beef animal that's getting ready to go to market it would be maybe you know it could be 50 to 60 percent um grain it's good this the largest single or non-forage forage and non-forage is maybe a good way to think about yeah it. so forage would be quite minimal um mm-hmm. and we can talk through that as well if we'd well, like I'm, but i'm more uh, so just trying to wrap my head but, around the word but it, yep grain be the largest cereal percentage grains. of like a, a single unit yes would, okay yep corn okay corn is the main okay. ingredient and so, maybe so it's not all when people are saying that they're grain fed they're pretty much right for that portion sure. of their life but even a a, you know, an, an animal that's finished on grain, there's studies that break it down. They still, over its lifetime, 85% of what it ate was forage. Mm-hmm. Um, so a grain-fed animal is 85%, you know, forage. forage intake from birth to slaughter. And so they're still predominantly forage, um, forage-fed. But the, the perk of the ruminant is their ability to, one, utilize things that we can't utilize or don't want, um, things that are completely inedible to us. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we, we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast, potentially. But we can't digest probably, cellulitic material. Yeah, it's the number one... We starve. Yeah, anyway, we just can't digest fiber. Um, humans, uh, mammals don't have the enzymes that are required to break down fiber. And it just so happens cellulose is the most abundant organic compound on Earth, and we can't use it. And the, the cattle... The ruminant cat love it, and it's the mm. microbes. So these microbes that are Thank in the gut God that for we the talk bugs. about. That yeah. yeah, well, exactly the the fermentation. They're able to extract the nutrients that they need from it. So let me ask you this: if you're if you're feeding grains to cattle, um, as a as a PhD nutritionist, I mean, is does that make cattle unhealthy? Period. By feeding them grain, no. Because a lot of people we hear it all the time, Jack and I. Mm-hmm. We hear it all the time that a grain is unhealthy for cows. It poisons them. It's bad for them. It's terrible. Whatever. It's like, but you no, say no. So, that's not so true. It's yeah. I mean, that's the thing that you guys. You know, I think a lot of people maybe do think that the answer is yes to that. And okay, that can be true in some circumstances. If they're fed a hundred percent grain, yeah, they might. Yeah. be sick but the reason that like feeding your kid 100 percent snickers yeah right or anything even good 100 percent yeah. milk 100 percent water is not going to be good for someone you know mm-hmm. there's oh there's too much of anything so one that's there's good reason you know why all of these um you know modern abundance egg production facilities would have phd nutritionists working so with them to formulate happen. it because everything you take corn you take forage you take all these ingredients you break them down to the nutrients within that ingredient and that's ultimately what you're feeding for is the nutrients mm-hmm. um you know the the nitrogen the, the carbs the fats the vitamins the minerals those sort of things are um ultimately what 
are the diets are formulated for. And so the the reason one that you know if if you fed too much corn acidosis can maybe happen where there's an upset stomach and the um the pH can get too low in the rumen. But that's why you formulate diets to to not have that happen. You know mm-hmm. what percentage of how often does that happen? Acidosis is that when people would just to connect the thin logic um, when people say that it makes them sick. Is that what they're probably referring to? Is acidosis or do they, they, so. not that they would even I, know? I don't even know if they know no. that much. You know, I, I just think they think that it's a, it's not um, to them. It's not what they think cattle should sure. be doing. Just on, and I think there's also a, po- a portion of it that it, um, it looks funny because we, th- to me, this is a reason why I think people maybe think this way. Corn looks like human food. Mm. Grass doesn't look like human food. They don't, like the idea of waste and we hear about starving people in the world eating something that humans could eat to cattle seems counterproductive Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of these reasons why corn gets a bad rap i think but from a illness standpoint i don't actually know what the reason is but if it it, acidosis maybe give them the the, benefit of the doubt that they're somehow to actually have an idea of what they're talking about and it's acidosis what percentage um do you like is that a tiny percent or is it a realistic like decent amount of cattle have acidosis it's so on a really if if you had uh you know if the diets weren't formulated well there's a chance that everything could get acidotic or have acidosis but on places that are run well and have good nutrition programs and um and um, feeding regimens it would be a you know a pretty small amount of animals and there's tiers to acidosis you know it's called subacute acidosis or acute acidosis Subacute is a certain threshold of pH in the rumen, and then acute would be an even lower level. If they're an acute, that doesn't happen all that often. There are instances where it does happen, though, because all of these animals are fed in a pen environment. Mm-hmm. And so you feed them. So say there's 100 animals in this pen. You deliver 25 pounds of feed per head per day into that bunk, but there's actually no telling this animal eats 25, this animal eats yeah. 25. The average of that pen is 25. Yeah. There might be a few in there that indulge and eat a lot more, and that can lead to pH dropping, and then maybe they would get acidosis. But by and large, it's uh, if it's becoming an issue, the nutritionist is going to be fired or tweaking their rations or, you know. They look at uh, the cattle every day. They have yeah. trained stuff. Like they're, they're looking for There's, the health of them all the time, yeah. pen riders and... There's signs that are yeah. that indicate subacute. But you can also get um on the to play the other end of the spectrum on the theme of too much. Like you know, in back in New Zealand, a common problem is is on the other end too much of um really uh, flourishing clover, mm-hmm. uh, fast growing legumes. Yep. We have another cl- uh, metabolic disease which is called uh, bloat. Um, yeah which is a gaseous distension of the rumen, which will kill, which kills cattle. Like will kill, it can kill off, you know, a big percentage of them if they get into these pastures that are too, we call them too hot. Any so Yellowstone fans depicted out there? depicted in Yellowstone? Oh, that's exactly when, right. Yeah, they drop. They Net, to, Yellowstone, the Netflix series? Yeah, or the Paramount or whatever it's oh. on. But, but right, yeah. they, they try to essentially a bunch of sabotaging alpha. another yeah. field. They Did drop they? it out of a helicopter? Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. back home, I mean, we have to, on our dairy farms with our heavily 
you know, are really improved pastures, like they're spectacular, and they're loaded with, we, we, we in New Zealand, we, we apply a lot of nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen, which, you know, a lot of the grass yeah. uh, proponents wouldn't know about, but we apply a ton of uh, DAP, diammonium uh, phosphate, and urea, to our pastures to make them grow so good, and uh, but but you can get these pastures can be get too hot, and then so then we have to drench our cattle with an anti bloat product at every twice a day at the milking while they're being milked. We actually give them a um, like a liter of an anti foaming agent mm-hmm. to stop them from getting uh, sick. So it's very widely practiced. And so on both ends of the spectrum, you know, mm. you can have too much of a good thing. I think that's the point. Yeah. And yep. um, the role of nutritionists is to, is to, is to balance everything out. Yeah. yeah. So unless we're looking at small percentages, in the general, this whole idea of feeding grain to cattle is is bs or it, sorry it makes them sick is bs yes yeah yeah okay. it's, a, it's a so next time i get a safe message i can just tell them they're full of shit yeah tell them the okay. bs my, doc, <laughs> I my doctor brother told me to tell you you're yeah watch yellowstone <laughs> yeah it's a it's it's been it's a funny thing because it they've is. they've used it the other thing is it's become um kind of um a little bit pernicious the the marketing or the anti the defaming of grain feeding cattle in order to elevate the so-called grass feeding mm-hmm. grass fed grass finished has been has become a uh, an area of of the market um in beef for beef that's become quite valuable people mm-hmm. pay more for that mm-hmm. and so it's been it's been unfortunate but the but the marketers of grass fed and grass finished have, uh, in order to grow their market share, have decided to um, impugn and denigrate the, the the conventional farming system of uh, feeding at the during the finishing period. Let's say the last five months of this of the cattle's life to feed them grains and other byproducts, as we talked, citrus pulp and cottonseed and all of these other things that like Jack said are lumped in and called grains. Mm-hmm. But so they've, they've, they're playing this very, I think it's a very um, disingenuous um, game of, of um, devour, trying to devour your brother in order to get your ga- to gain yourself. It's like a Cain and Abel thing. Yeah. Um, and we see a lot of that and I think it's terrible, you know, because at the end of the day, the message should be that all beef is good. And in some situations, grass-fed and grass-finished, like in New Zealand and in Uruguay and Chile and in parts of Australia, like in Victoria, where we can grow grass 12 months of the year, 10 months of the year. And we don't have any grain because we can't grow grains in some of these places. Mm-hmm. Well, then grass-feeding fits perfectly. And it's great for the environment and great for the cattle and everyone wins. But in other environments, like you go to um, into you go to Egypt or you go to Indonesia or Vietnam or you go to uh, Jordan or Israel or you go to um, Saudi Arabia for that matter. And then you now you're going to try and grain. I mean, you're going to try and grass feed your cattle there. Mm-hmm. Like there is no bloody grass. There is no prairie. 
Um, so there we have to have a we have to use the the resources, the food sources that are available. To your point, Tommy, then you can because of the miracle of a cow with her digestive system, then we can start feeding her coconut meal like in Indonesia mm-hmm. or palm kernel meal that they have in Malaysia as example or rice, you know, broken rice in Thailand. And in 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 Egypt, the same thing, you know, with uh, rice or with bakery products, you know, because they, mm-hmm. um, from the huge human population, there's a lot of bakery, uh, wheat based, you yeah. know. So all of these things, it's like horses for courses, and the and a, and these cattle are so adaptable. What's horses you know? for horses, horses for courses? That's the old saying, you know. Match them up properly. I like it. You it's like, like a that? Cool band. Yeah, yeah. So like, just like getting it, getting it right. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you've that's a lot. It's of, fairly interesting. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, get that. Uh, on an international scale, that's a lot of examples. But that's also for the those listening. If you're mostly, um, you know, an audience in the states here, the same principle and kind of general concept of feeding what makes sense. Um, is applied and practiced here. I think maybe we already talked about this in the last one, but yeah. to make this a standalone episode, if people yeah. haven't listened to the former, you know, we've got the famously abundant grass uh, grazing lands in the West and then, you know, the Corn Belt. And um, on a national level, that's that's like a synergy that we background them and, and graze the 85% of their life. You talked about they don't eat, they're eating forages. That would happen in that scenario. And then, Bring them over to the, the uh, bring them east and finish them. Yeah, I mean that's that's right. And bring them it's, to the corn belt. Bring yeah. them to where the corn is and and the big populations with all the food waste, all the byproduct industry, yeah. all the industry yeah. is right here. Yeah, this is uh, side note. It, Tommy did a uh, his PhD, uh, your thesis, right? Was is an interesting study in this area. But w- what was it? It was oh, yeah. with hemp. Yeah, looking at hemp. So that's a, mm-hmm. it's another good example of why the ruminant gets called upon to, you know, make other industries look good. Uh, the the hemp uh, with the farm bill in 2018, it's been banned for a long, long time. As a hemp feed. Because um, just as, yeah, as a crop. Oh, Can't sure. grow it in the U.S. because it for a long time we had no way of differentiating hemp from marijuana. Their, um, THC is the psychoactive component of weed, marijuana. Um, it just happens to be higher in marijuana strains and lower in hemp strains. Um, and CBD is the sister molecule. So THC, psychoactive, CBD, not psychoactive, they're sister molecules. And so differentiating them for a long time was uh, the, the lab techniques weren't there. So it was just easier to ban all hemp production, um, crop production in the U.S. Um, however, it did go on for quite a while. But basically in the 70s, it was banned in the 30s and phased out in the 70s all the way. Um Took a while Took a to actually. While. <laughs> yeah, people for some like reason a, are hesitant to yeah. give it up. Um, but then with the Farm Bill of 2018, it has been approved for crop production, so you can industrially grow hemp um, in well in all the states. Um, they have the ability to allow it now, sure. and so it's uh, you know it, it as it, with anything new in the market, it's quite volatile. So there's 18, 19, and 20 were big surges in hemp production, and then all of a sudden. There's not a huge market for all of the products. Um, sure. So the oil, CBD oils that people would be quite familiar with today, you know, that's a human side thing. People like the anti-inflammatory 
components of these oils. So you grow hemp, plants that can be taller than, you know. Corn. Dad, you're like five, six, Jack, six, hey, four hey, is taller hey, than. Six, three. <laughs> yeah. That's the afro. That can be taller than all With of us the here. Afro. You know, these, these hemp plants can get quite tall. But if you're only taking the seed and then taking the oil out of that seed, there's a lot of wasted yeah. product there again. And so my. That's the theme that wherever there's industry. Yeah, byproduct. You better have ruminants nearby, and so yeah. the highly fibrous product. These my dissertation itself was looking at the seeds. Um, that they'd squeeze them, take the oil. You're left with this hemp seed product that has most of the oil removed. So a natural market to make that oil industry more, um, you know, enticing to stay in and possible to stay in. You have to have markets for the um, for the byproduct, and yeah. so I was looking to see if. Uh, if it's safe and uh, makes sense to feed these um, this byproduct from hemp production to cattle, and uh, cattle was the logical choice to put it into because they can utilize the the fiber like we were yep. talking about before. What was the in in a nutshell? Was it safe to feed them? Yes. And was yeah, it productive? Sure. Seemed safe and depends on what you're comparing it to, but for sure. sure it's productive. There's a lot of protein in it and a lot of fiber. It's, two things energy and protein is what the microbes need and remember we're feeding the microbes in the cattle and so it's a it makes sense to you know it was a pretty good product it's not as digestible as some other staples in the industry um you know the byproduct from yep. the ethanol industry is the distillers grains and that's the that's the gold standard now for byproducts and these and would be probably priced accordingly though too right like with yes the, so it's yep so the alternative the right is price. getting no no value out of it without cattle Yep. You know, so it might not be as good as distillers. To me, it seemed like the takeaway would be that, yeah, if it's priced properly, um, probably relative to distillers or to corn itself, then it would... Uh, might have a place. Might have a place. So that's just one, yeah, one small example of how ruminants can kind of help other industries check their boxes of making them sustainable. You yeah. Know? Yeah, economically too. And economically. Like if you took away the ability to feed... The byproduct, then the the actual main product might not be yeah. viable anymore. So you yeah. now you lose that, and you yep. lose all the jobs, and you lose all the correct. Uh, a good one that also comes to mind on this on this theme is two things. One is like the miracle of cattle is to turn um, is to turn inedible products into you know ribeyes. Yeah. Like that is a magical trick. Like that's like God really wanted that to happen. <laughs> so so there's that. And then number two is like a good another good one is um people are there's a lot of people that are really keen on uh you know green energy. So here we come back to energy again. Mm -hmm. And so they say one of the greenest energies is ethanol, corn ethanol. You know, well, well, we could talk about that too. But so you take you grow corn, and then you're going to extract the sugars uh, out of that in the form of uh, ethanol, and then you're going to use that to fuel your car, rather than use the, you know, the the fossil fuels. And um, but the ethanol industry is already subsidized by the, the U.S. taxpayer, mm -hmm. um, you know, terribly. And then they have to force you to use it because the the shit is so bad for your vehicles and and um and people wouldn't and it can't compete with you know oil mm -hmm. so they mandate it you got to have 10% or 15% whatever in your tank at the gas station so that's number 1 so it's already it's already subsidized we're subsidizing farmers to grow corn 
to to burn that corn and get ethanol out of it. So it's already uneconomical. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is uh, there's a huge waste product from the extraction of ethanol out of corn. And um, I don't know how much it is, but I, just, let's just say it's 60% of its waste. Well, they're only, they're only, and that would all be a loss, an economic loss, if it wasn't for cattle. So, and that's where this word, you guys have been talking about distiller's grains, but a lot of people listening wouldn't know what the hell distiller's grain is, but that's what it is. It's coming, it's a byproduct of the distillation of corn to get ethanol from it. Mm-hmm. And so again, the cattle industry is saving the ethanol industry, which is so-called saving the planet. Yeah. You know, so it's all resting on cows. And God loves cows, and so do we. <laughs> amen. So amen to that. Especially in India. Yeah, yeah, and especially yeah. in India. But they have a different God, so, yeah. yeah. Different and a different too. love for them. Yeah. yeah. They don't love the ribeye, per se. Speaking no. of our love for them, the, uh, the eating and obvious benefit there, is there all these different... Um, byproducts or feeds that we've talked about is there a noticeable difference in flavor that uh and maybe this is a hard answer question to answer but you talked about let's pull two of the most extreme distillers versus um citrus pulp or coconut mm-hmm. meal is there a difference in the f- flavor of the of the meat that comes out of that for um for the like for the consumer yeah like i'm i I could almost see it being like a yeah like sure, a marketable sure. thing like ooh coconut coconut yeah. flavored oh, ribeye fed cat beef but uh, right and maybe there is a difference but i i don't i've never thought about it no so in general the answer would be no sure. um it's not completely true though with some ingredients can influence flavor it mostly comes from the fats that are produced and so okay. that's why well maybe we'll touch on it too but grass like grain, grain fed, fed there's so much better. Um, quantifiable yeah consumer preference differences between the two comes from the fatty acid profile but for the most part these products would be you know um, some of them would if they're broken down in the room and there's broken down to their nutrient constituents and sure. then they get incorporated into the body in the just as the nutrient there's no so taint no taint gotcha. yep so it's not like if you what about aged like, a but, wine in a whiskey barrel you get that right yeah. there's not that effect not to say there, maybe there's something I don't know. I think um, you could. In general, the answer people. is no, but I don't <laughs> know. For have sure you ever had like? A, have you heard of boar taint? Yes. Excuse me. It's, it's just horrendous. <laughs> Excuse like me. It. How dare you? How Good dare band you. name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> boar taint meat raffle. Yeah. <laughs> no, boar taint is horrible. It's from when they have when you have an an older uh, male an intact boar, you know, who's not castrated, and mm. the meat is just horrendous oh i have heard of this yeah yeah and uh like it's so strong in the uh, deleteriously strong flavor yeah and like mm. when you hunt wild pigs you know like back home um with uncle jeremy and 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 but and they they shoot these wild boars and 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 to me it's just horrendous you know <laughs> You want to eat the piglets. Is this your way of telling him, or does he know this, do you <laughs> yeah. think this way? <laughs> no, he knows damn well. I'm sure all those pig hunters don't want to eat the old boars. Yeah. Um, and then they have, you know, sometimes in, in Europe, they've, 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 they don't have, in some European countries, they don't have castration of pigs anymore. Mm. Well, they have a chemical castration rather than the physical cutting of the testicles. 
and um, sometimes it doesn't work, and so you, you inadvertently you get it with some meals. Oh. So, but I wonder why that. I wonder what that. Wonder what those mole- those yeah. flavor molecules are versus. I suppose so, the difference there is that's producing it in the body as opposed to. Yes. Oh. So it would be a metabolite inside. Uh, but it, the same for lamb, actually, though. So like it's uh, here at NDSU, they're actually quite interested in um, if you can. So lamb. Um, that market hasn't increased in quite a long time, you know, yeah. with the U.S. consumer. Um, and one of the reasons is decreasing. because if you just try it in the store, you end up getting what that, that wool flavor or yeah. that, um, mm-hmm. that that off Oily. flavor, mutton yeah. flavor sort of in, um, in lamb once in a while. And without being able to identify that, you know, this lamb chop will taste, it will have that amount of that flavor because to a small percentage of people, it's actually a desirable flavor. No. Um, so if you could quantify how much flavor that is in this lamb chop, you know, you could help the consumer and then people could select for the low. I can't oh. remember what that compound is called, though. I'm going to have to look that up. But It's like so a it's lanolin. Like a, yeah, it's oh. it's something like that, though, where... So that's you could the, seek out, to your preference, yes. you know, a low or high. Yes. Yeah. That's a horrible taste if you ever have that. It's like you want to just take it's your tongue so, and go... Yeah, <laughs> it's so bad. It's so bad. Yeah, but so it's to do people. with castrates. It's to do with males as well or no? Don't really know. Okay. Yeah. But it definitely is tainting the, the yep. meat. It's uh, But they know what compound it is. And oh. so that was my point is that that's the, there is a metabolite in the body that they have pinpointed as Identified. the one that carries that flavor. Uh, um, and then it's just the levels of that are the, the issue. Have you uh, uh, seen or heard of um, olive-fed Wagyu being marketed? I see mm-hmm. it pop up every once in a while that yep. they're totally promoting that i don't know what it is if it's in the finishing or their whole life they're fed olives but um but it's a it's a very clear marketing point that's fetching an additional premium already on obviously crazy expensive what's the Wagyu. reason what is, i don't know what is it adding? I, I don't know i have no idea i i just oleic acid yeah but they're so that's the other thing about the rumen that you, you can feed them any sort of fat you want but it's going to come out, come out it's going to leave thing. the rumen as a saturated fat so it doesn't, to your, I mean, very new knowledge of this product, it probably is a, a Maybe they're massaging them in olive oil. Like is it olive oil Japan. or are they feeding them olives? It says olive, <laughs> olive. All I have uh, <laughs> seen of it is olive-fed Wagyu. Yeah, uh, interesting. I'll have to look I, into that. But if it's yeah. for the fat properties, that's a, it's a losing battle. I'm going to go out on a limb in here and say it's just pure marketing. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> kind of what I'm getting at after there's the, so much bs when I asked out the question, there i hadn't even remembered that example but yeah no, but i've seen it too jack being marketed i've seen it as well uh-huh. the meat comes out looking a little bit green comes out looking white because it's just all fat <laughs> true yeah like there's not enough fat already in wagyu yeah i anyways i don't know what they're Playing i'm sure they have some sort of um claim that flavor it, it does yeah some sort because you can obviously influence the flavor after the I'll have to look into that. That isn't back to your question though about how certain ingredients, if they can change the end product flavor. Yeah, that may be your your quick answer though of that. Mm -hmm. No matter what fat is fed, it kind of all comes out the same. So yeah, it doesn't. But there is. Why is it then? There's a discernibly different, um, and you know, in my opinion, better taste between uh, grain fed as a category versus grass fed, grass finished. Amount of fat would be one. Okay. Um, but also the profiles are slightly different. So in general, plants... So that's a very noticeable flavor 
difference. Yeah, and color too, right? So, and color. Um, looks, of the you, fat can, too. you can actually identify the more the yellow fat. fat. Is more yellow from these um, pasture carotenoids. Yep, the the grass grass fed ones. So that would be um, one reason the flavor differences is that there just happens to be a higher degree of finish fat coating finish to the grain fed animals, and fat mm-hmm. carries a lot of flavor. Um, it has a lot of tenderness properties and you sure. know um, things like that, and so that gets picked up in these consumer panels where there's taste tests um, done. Um, but it it in general the rule is that if uh, you know these plant compounds they contain unsaturated fatty um, fats, their oils are unsaturated, and then in the rumen through it's called biohydrogenation they're putting hydrogens onto this fat uh, the microbes do it because unsaturated fats are toxic to microbes so to in order to you know get their living environment more hospitable they throw some hydrogens onto that fat they Crazy. saturate it it's now fully saturated with hydrogens there's no double bonds so it's all you know if you picture a carbon has four lines coming off it one of them goes to the next carbon three go to hydrogens um, if it's unsaturated, there's a double bond, which means there's one less hydrogen that could be on there, so it's not saturated. So long story short, microbes put a hydrogen on there, goes through the rumen, and it leaves as a saturated fat, fully saturated with hydrogens. And so even if you wanted to really manipulate the fatty profile, it's difficult because mm. of that mechanism. There are some fats that can sneak through, though, um, and you can play with... You Bypass know, fats. Yeah, you can have some bypass, but for the most part, um, fats aren't, they all bypass. Sure. So they're not degraded, they're just manipulated. So they're not, fats aren't fermentable, mm-hmm. they're just modified in the rumen. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not used by the microbes necessarily there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a crazy freaking scene that's happening in the room. <laughs> it's like, like, if you zoomed in, you, yeah, yeah, it's, it's so like, great, there's an entire It's like a universe. fire drill. They get the... <laughs> They get the unsaturated fats, and someone rings the bell, and here they come running with all the hydrogens. <laughs> Just be it's easier crazy. if the cattle ate saturated fats. Yeah. The microbes would be they'd be bored. Save they'd them. They have nothing to do. Right. Very interesting. You know the um, the there are there are some health ish, uh, aspects that get talked about with pasture or grass fed. They talk about them having higher omega three fats, yeah. and mm-hmm. um. Yeah, and that's it. so it's part of this fatty acid profile, and then they tout that as being good for cardiovascular. And by inference, they they suggest that grain fed or conventionally fed cattle, you know, are could be you know not good for your cardiovascular. But by benefit of eating grass, you know, now you are a superfood, mm-hmm. um, and that's played out in all the marketing and part of driving people to try and spend more money on on uh, grass-fed beef, which is, you know, discernibly tougher, more chewy, mm-hmm. I, w- I would say less tasteful, um, less tasty. But anyway, that's part of the deal. So they say, oh, we have uh, pasture has much higher omega-3s and, and omega-3 to 6 ratios better, and then higher CLAs, conjugate, conjugate, conjugated linoleic acids. Mm-hmm. And um, But anyway, so... You know, is there any truth to those sort of claims, or is it more like, yeah. yeah, there's a difference, but it doesn't matter a hill of beans, you know? Yep. So it seems that, okay, there is a difference. There may be more omega-3s um, that can, mm-hmm. you know, be found in 
Is that grass in fresh, fresh grass or just an all even dormant or even silage grass? Or is it only with like actively growing grass? I don't know. Okay. Don't know for sure. But I know the studies that look at it or that mm-hmm. um, they would suggest that there is slightly more omega-3s that end up in the, you know, the grass-fed beef compared to the grain-fed. But mm-hmm. is it biologically relevant as far as influencing health outcomes? Um, the, you know, the, the anti-inflammatory properties of omega-3, you know, are that's pretty well studied. So it sounds good to have grass-fed beef have more omega-3s. But how much more, and is it a meaningful amount more? And I think that answer is, you know, it's most likely to be no. Um, I think I've heard you say this before, but if you want your mm-hmm. omega threes, you shouldn't be eating beef in the first place. Yeah, it's not salmon, a right? you need mackerel. to eat so much damn beef to get your omega three fill to make a meaningful difference that you're gonna have a whole other. Um, it'd be a fun challenge actually <laughs> yeah. to try to get your omega threes through a ribeye. But I've heard uh, what was the comparison eating beef for omega-3s is like eating carrots for protein yeah yeah sure yeah i think you can eat one if you ate one meal of salmon a week that provides something something like 25 times as much omega-3s as you know one uh meal of the uh of any beef yeah whether it's grass or grain fed it's funny they've singled that out principle is you know it's talked about there's other (laughs) scenarios like the well, implanted beef versus non-implanted yeah. beef, um, the estrogen content of the of that mm. product, is there more? Yes. Is it a meaningful amount? Well, no. You know, it's, uh, it's it like doesn't seem to be a trivial amount. It's very, very small relative to other things. And so that kind of line mm. of thinking, um, you can't say no, there's not more omega-3s in the grass-fed, but... They don't give you the scale of the grass yeah. that you're looking at. Right, right. Yeah, so I think like mackerel, mackerel and salmon are like... Oh, maybe it's like 250 or 2,500 on a, whatever it is, nanograms and, again, micromoles. I, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, I don't quite remember. But, yeah, and grass-fed is like six and grain-fed is like three. Yeah. <laughs> Versus, so the axis of the comparison is like if you throw in the, the, the salmon as example, um, then then it goes through the roof, the yeah. scale. It won't even register. So and just in general, you shouldn't. You know, there's not one singular food can give you everything. Absolutely everything. It just yeah. happens that some foods offer more nutrient dense offerings than others, and there just isn't a single thing out there that gives you the perfect balance of every single thing you need for every. But person. beef gets pretty close to so it. If there was, you can get one, all the carnivores out. That's the one. It's beef. Well, like Richard Rangham, you know, the the great the great paleo scientist anthropologist. I know him. He's I don't the, either. He wrote the Catching Fire. Oh, oh, the yeah. great book. Okay. I think it's you right guys there. have read it too. You got the book over there. Yeah, I mean, he Go makes that us, that yeah. great case of like eating meat liberated. You know, that's what made us human. That's his hypothesis. It's pretty compelling. Cooking yeah. it. Yeah, right. So we yeah. cooked it. And we talked before about how we can't digest fiber and lignin and cellulose, and that's why baboons and gorillas and chimps, you know, they have a guts, you know, that's out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because as a proportion of their body. Right. As a proportion of their body, they got a huge stomach. Like if you ran out their intestines, it'd go like from, from, Fargo, from Fargo down to Sioux Falls. You know, to be fair, a lot of the U.S. has a huge stomach too. <laughs> well, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> yeah, you've been to Walmart lately. <laughs> like, holy shistry. No, you do have a point. 
<laughs> the resorting back to yeah. historic times. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we we we, we were able to get rid of our gut through fire and cooking meat, mm-hmm. meat and fat. Send more and, nutrient um, to the you bet, brain. More nutrients to the brain because they all that those that protein and then the fat. You know, with gluconeogenesis and the the brain needs glucose, right? And um, yep. anyway, that liberated us. So then we were able to get rid of our gut, and um, yeah, or most of us, or some of us, and <laughs> and um, and 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 move to predominantly eating meat. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's really what made us human. It's a very compelling story. It's yeah, very very plausible. Yeah, I think it. I mean, I think it holds a lot of. Yeah. Merit and so then we started the, uh, chasing the ungulates, right? The rumin, the ruminants yeah. across the the prairie, and they've been our main food source ever since. Large mm-hmm. ruminants, what vitamins about the, and uh, minerals and proteins and fat yeah. come from. You know, you can get that all in a all one, in a steak, all in one meal. Mm-hmm. This has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. But what, uh, mm-hmm. what about the? Is it the stoned ape? Oh yeah, theory. That's the, yeah. Uh, that's a. Equally compelling, oh, yeah. Just, just purely different. on interesting. Uh, unless you guys can reel me in if this does not fit the script, but it fits. What's the uh, what, what is that? It's the stoned it's, ape theory. Stoned ape is with isn't that the the psilocybin and the Ulyssian mysteries, the Di- Dionysian mysteries. Yes. <laughs> in a word, yes, I, I think so. so. It's yeah, it's the psilocybin. I don't know. Yeah. Exactly is the idea that an that ape op- came across psilocybin came became enlightened? Yes, and that was growing in pastures, so it pulled them down from the trees, and they kept searching out in these open fields and became more ground-bearing or ground-based animals. And but the psilocybin or the mushroom, I think, gave them a greater realm of thinking. Is that right? Or greater consciousness and greater or expanded. Um, expanded yeah um thought presses and then that led to yeah you know, further developing um moving away from the treetops and um becoming more upright species it's a, interesting i wonder yeah. if they are, i wonder if there's a combination of the i was two. gonna say if they they seem that they could be uh coexist or yeah. you know works together the the two for compelling sure. arguments if they're cooking for sure. mushrooms though then that burns out the psilocybin you just cook so the they meat. have to cook the meat yeah yeah. Keep talking about this, we might have uh, Joe Rogan walk through that door. So <laughs> let's be careful. Just don't mention DMT. Yeah. we be here. Sturgill with him. Yeah. No, it's a brilliant theory. I think there's a lot, both of them, both of them can work together. Yeah. Well, they do work together. One's sort of mostly physiological, like digestive and mm-hmm. growth and brain and proportion of of our anatomical changes and then the other is our you know consciousness yeah and so i think they're both both of them fold in together very well yeah yeah and i I read another book about the psychedelic sort of psychedelic um uh, appetite of all organisms all the way from mollusks you know to to um caribou right to caribou and to uh um Every uh, elephant's, uh, it's a great book. Every animal, sheep, what is goats. What's it called? Do you know the name? Um, no, I don't. It's all, it's all, anyway, it's on my shelf, but it's a, it is really an interesting book about how even ants and insects and, you know, from the smallest to the biggest all seek out uh, psychedelics, actively mm-hmm. seek them out. And, um, and here we are, you know, we've, we've been, 
like ever since the 60s, you know, there we've been, um, there's so much legal and pressure to, you know, against, yeah. to, to criminalize any use of it. But it seems like they've been with us forever since, since we literally fell out of the tree and something instinctive stood upright. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Living things to seek that out. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. No, it's really incredible. Still plug that name of the book into the description of this episode or something maybe yeah yeah it's worth it. reading it's a very sh- it's a quick read but it's, it's not a good called one. animals and psychedelics is yeah. it yeah oh, oh yeah that's, that's aptly it. named yeah animals it's got a very psychedelic cover on yes, the book it too does. yeah <laughs> looks like no it's fascinating Tyler Childers yeah really from ants to to elephants hmm. everyone every every animal they've that they've looked at has a as a predilection or an active, an active search for them. Mm. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? I'll have, to, I'll have to give that one a read. I don't yeah, know yeah. One available on uh, yeah. Barnes yeah. and Noble. Yep, seven ninety nine. That and the alchemy of air. <laughs> yep, yep, and our daily bread. That's the Norman Borlaug book. That's really great. Um, that's worth reading. Catching fire was the other one. Catching fire. Fire is yeah. another wonderful, great book. I think. It's the Hunger Games series, right? <laughs> How dare you? Isn't that the same name of the? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. I would just watch the movies then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Skip the reading. So our take home, I think we didn't we didn't get to methane and um, and the role cattle play with that, or in relation to to more myth, more myth busting, if you will. I think maybe next time we can. We could pick that up because I think there's a lot of a lot of things could be clarified there mm-hmm. to take away this alarmism about eating beef, you yeah. know, because I think in, their, in people's hearts they love beef, you know, and and um, they love to have a good meal of beef. Like it, it actually beats everything. Oh, for yeah. sure. And um, and so and people and they but they've been made to feel bad about Correct. it, and that needs to stop. And so mm-hmm. I think if we can help. People feel get more understanding about it, including the climate issue, the greenhouse gas. You know that they call cow farts, um, and and clear that whole thing up and put it in perspective. Then I think people can not only you know they can feel good about enjoying like wonderful beef, whether it's grass fed or grass and grain fed or or whatever, as long as the animals are being looked after. You know, and being raised responsibly, and 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 the and the farm families are doing their best to look after the land and the animals. And there's no reason why we can't just feel like, hell yes, mm-hmm. yeah. we're gonna eat, we're gonna love our beef, we're gonna eat more of it. Mm-hmm. Damn straight, love it. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. good. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Thanks, thanks, fellas. I learned a lot actually. Yeah, always. This is super fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both.